the very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to Podcast, Care of Cooper Cherry. Today's guest is Grisel de Castillo. Griselda is a bilingual, bilingual, oh, wait, excuse me, back that up, er, an award-winning bilingual poet and creative nonfiction writer from Laredo, Texas, and she is the daughter of Mexican immigrants, a first-generation American, and explores her bicultural identity through poems and stories. So, Griselda, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Of course, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Um, so before before we get too far in, I'm just going to do a couple of quick things, um, and then we'll jump in. So hang in there with me, okay? Okay. Uh, first, just wanted to mention, if anybody out there uh, enjoys the show, definitely feel free, or if you feel so inclined, definitely could use the help in producing the podcast. And I do have a Patreon. You can find me at um, patreon.com forward slash podcast co cooper cherry i'm also on twitter at podcast co cooper and instagram at podcast underscore co underscore cooper underscore cherry but so to start things off um i want to maybe do something fun can you think of a good way to insult me in spanish a good way to insult yeah. you in spanish S- some tell me insult me in spanish i mean how, for the audience. how much do you want to be degraded whatever you whatever you want to say Whatever ahead. I want to say. Well, yeah. I don't want to degrade you. Thing, but <laughs> you could just make of... make fun of me somehow. Okay. In Spanish. Well, actually, you made fun of yourself one time. Can I tell this story? Sure. So you grew up on a cattle ranch, right? right. Okay. Mm-hmm. And you had some Mexican uh, ranch hands that worked with you. And I think that you were kidding. I think um, you mentioned that they called you. Oh, they called me the white tornado. No, they called you something really horrible. They called you. Chichango Maricón? No. What was it? No, it was nothing like that. Yes, it was. You told me this story. No, so either no. you lied to me or that's, <laughs> that is something that you're willing to deny to your uh, No, they called me like pinche bolio or something like okay, that. Okay, so that's like a fucking huero, like a white guy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I would say the ranch hands pretty got you pretty good on those. Pinche bolio is pretty bad. Um... If I were to insult you, like, let's say, like, you you made me mad for some reason, I would call you, like, um, a fucking ojete, which is an asshole, or... But say, say it in Spanish, though. I just did. Pinche ojete, pinche Cooper could... ojete. No okay, vale yeah, verga. Yeah. Right. That also is another one. Cooper, Cooper no vale verga. It literally translates to Cooper isn't worth cock. He's not worth dick. Not worth dick. Not at all. Nice. No vale verga. Fuck you. <laughs> nice. So... <laughs> So you grew up in Laredo, Texas, right along the border. It's right on the border. Right. That's what I. That's what I said. Uh-huh. I said right uh-huh. along the border. Uh-huh. What What was that like growing up? Um, that's a weird question to answer <laughs> because I 
not, I mean, to, aside the bullshit of everyone's unique and you got a you know, unique story and everyone's special, et cetera, et cetera. I feel like um, not only am I a first-generation American, I'm also a first-generation Texan. So my American uh, upbringing, my Mexican upbringing, and my Texas upbringing were pretty fucked up just because my parents are from Mexico. So growing up on the border was particularly strange because border towns in and of themselves are bizarre. Um, You are basically not speaking very good English. You're not communicating in very good Spanish. Um, All of the signs and menus everywhere you go are in Spanish, but yet you're ordering in this like broken English. So it's a bizarre place to grow up. We always felt like outsiders because my parents were illegal immigrants. You know, they didn't know anybody in Laredo. But because we were right on the border, my father wasn't very too far from his family. So the border, growing up on the border is always weird to describe because it didn't ever feel like we were on a border until George Bush came into office. Oh, interesting. So um, before that, it was kind of like we lived on this side. President, wait, president or governor yes, of Texas? no, president. Okay. Yeah. Um, so it felt like we lived in a city that just happened to be divided by a river. It didn't feel like we were in two places. So like my uh, my dad really liked to eat across. That's what we call it. We call it like cross, going el otro lado, just going to the other side. It wasn't like a border. It was a crossing. We didn't make a big deal out of it. Um, but I remember because my dad grew up over there, uh, he always enjoyed all the restaurants and the food and stuff you can't get in, in Laredo. And um, we would go over like a lot. We never thought about, you know, the repercussions of crossing the river there weren't ever any like really you just had to pay 25 cents to either walk across the bridge or declare your stuff and just go over the river it wasn't ever a big deal so it wasn't until I came back like I think I was visiting from being away at school that I realized okay this is two different places now like it's not one place it's not a place that's united anymore it's pretty divided so up until then it felt like pretty normal you know we just happened to have a dominantly English side and a dominantly Spanish side and you can go shop over there and work over here and live over there or whatever like people had fun fluid lives like that and then um it just stopped being that way so it's it's a little bit of uh there is that dissonance where you know like living on the border felt like it was very complete and it felt like you had literally the best of both worlds and you were learning about yourself and your roots and all that stuff. And then all of a sudden there was a very harsh demarcation of this is America and that is not America. So I was able to live through both of those things. Before that, my parents were pretty, you know, it was a pretty utopian experience. They just kind of went back and forth and there was no real hassle about it until later. So we should probably orient people that so Laredo is the Texas town, and then you have Nuevo Laredo on the right. other side. Uh-huh. But there, it's it's kind of like essentially just one metropolitan sort Something of area, like ba- basically, right? Something like that. So um, if you go uh, down to that area, you'll see like uh, tourist kind of signs that say, you know, Los Dos Laredos, because it was always considered both cities. Um, the commerce, you know, there used to be a trolley that took people back and forth across the river. Um so yeah, so Nuevo Laredo is directly across from Laredo. Laredo was like, I think in history, was like the Spanish capital, and then Nuevo Laredo was what was put on the other side um, historically. So they've always been connected um, as two cities, yeah. 
kind of like El Paso and, and Juarez. A little bit like that, although El Paso... Juarez is a lot bigger, though. Juarez is huge, yeah. So is El Paso. And they also have, like, the New Mexican influence over there. So, yeah. like, it's a little bit different. It's not like what we um, have down south. We're, we're basically almost to the tip of Texas. And El Paso is the other side of that. Gotcha. And so did you... Where, where were your parents, actually? From? They were where in Mexico did, so did they So my father was born in Tamaulipas, which is a northern state. And my mother was also born in Tamaulipas. So my dad's from Noledo. My mom, they're both from the same state. My mom is from Ciudad Victoria, which is a little bit further southeast, I believe. Yeah. Um, but they both met in Noledo and um, got married there. My dad's one of 11, so his whole family was there. And then... Um, once they decided to move to Laredo, which wasn't really hard, you literally just picked up your shit and went. Um, they started having their kids on the side. Yeah. But you were and you were born in the States? I was born in the States, yeah. But like by a mile or so. Right. Yeah. So what was that like growing up? Because you're growing up along the border. What is that like? So you mentioned a little bit for context that right around the time that George W. Bush became president, mm -hmm. that the sort of climate or like mood or like the difference became a lot starker. Yes. Talk, can you maybe elaborate yeah, so that about was, that a little bit? Yeah. So Laredo is uh, the largest land port that we have in the United States. A lot of like um, trade comes through there. Um, so uh, going back and forth, like I said before that, time was relatively easy like you literally just had to put a quarter in a slot you go across the bridge you could walk there you take your car there you take your you know whatever people would take go have their doctor's appointments on that side go shopping etc cetera, etc cetera. Uh, once I came back to visit after being away in school was the first time that the border felt um, militarized it had never been like that before so there was like a whole bunch of new security there was um, a lot of different like um, kind of procedures and processes that you have to go through in order to get across, and it wasn't just this like easy thing anymore. It was also uh, the first time that once you did get across, you saw people on the Mexican side like walking around the plazas with like automatic weapons and in full camo and like body um, armor and stuff like that. So you could tell that something was really, really going on. Um, I remember while I was away, um, that's kind of when there was a lot of cartel activity down there. So there would be like um, shootouts on the bridge, there'd be finding bodies in Laredo, people were getting like hung and stuff. So there was a lot of cartel activity that was going on before. Then Bush got into office and then the border became heavily militarized and it was like a lot harder to go across. It also felt kind of scary um, to go out there. It wasn't something that we could do kind of normally as family anymore. Like it took a lot more consideration and thinking and stuff to get over there. And um, what kind of made it seem extremely scary was um, I had a friend who came down who wanted to get dental work across. And um, I said, cool, I would take him to go see that. He, he didn't tell me he had dental anxiety. So once we got there, he was like, fuck, no, I don't want to get my <laughs> teeth fixed in Mexico. This is so scary. Um, and uh, he had gotten some pain medication at the pharmacy. The guy at the pharmacy was like, yeah, you can cross this over. Just like take it out of the box, put it in your pants, et cetera. And so we did that, and on the way back, because he was like the one white person in like a sea of 300 Mexicans that are going back and forth across the river, he got pulled into secondary, got really scared, all that stuff. That wouldn't have happened before. So, yeah, there was a big change during that time. 
what about today? Like, how do you feel about the talk of building the wall and all that kind of Well, that's all bullshit. Stuff. I well, mean, yeah, I mean, I know it's bullshit. But yeah. Like, having being there and, like, actually growing up there and experiencing the sort of, like, this progression of more, I don't know, you know, obviously, like, this security element mm-hmm. is something that seems to be a, yes. a change. Yes. Um, well, I mean, I definitely have mixed feelings about that. I mean, obviously, no wall, fuck Donald Trump, all that other stuff, right? Um, but um, what has struck me the most is, like, my own people's ignorance about what immigration is and really falling into believing this kind of rhetoric where um, we're encouraged to be separate from others and to fear other people. Like, that's all stuff that I really don't understand. So seeing... Some of the people um, that I identify with culturally or some people that are from the same hometown kind of believe this like shitty rhetoric that keeps other people at bay it makes me one understand like the how complex racism can be in a border town because I remember one of the biggest things growing up there was that you really, really didn't want someone to identify you as a Mexican for some reason that was really like below what anyone ever wanted to be and just by the sheer fact that we were born on this side of the border we had somehow obviously an advantage over um people that weren't lucky enough to be born on this side not only that like you're looking down on like your family so like if you lived here your grandma probably still lived in Tamaulipas and so to have that hatred towards Mexicans has always been really interesting to me especially when it's like fostered by Mexican-American people. So that's the part about the wall that's kind of like freaked me out a little bit is um, I had this feeling that the people from the community that I'm from would understand because we're so close to the border that that's like an arbitrary thing. It's fucking solid bullshit. You know, like you don't keep people out. These people aren't trying to fuck up our society (laughs) in any sort of way. But there's still some zealots down there that really believe that we are born on this side and we are American and we have to keep people out of that because of X, Y, Z, whatever. So it's been mixed. My personal feelings are like, obviously, no. I think like putting up borders is ridiculous. I think that we as people are, we live with this like innate duality of being both things at once. And that should kind of help us understand like how other people are dealing with this. So it's very, it's been really interesting to me to see like, where I come from and how that population of people, those type of people think about that stuff. But I also am totally like appalled and surprised that anyone would say, yeah, the wall's a good idea. But there happens to be a lot of that where I'm from. And how much would you say, like what, how influential is that experience in your artistry, in your writing? Mm, Well, I mean, I'm definitely not a let's divide, let let me be separate from you kind of performer or kind of writer. Like, um, I think that my stance with translation kind of speaks to that. I don't like to translate my work. I don't like to provide translation for my work. I think that... um, you know, with the influence that Latin American people have in the country and Hispanics in general, you know, how they kind of make society run in an invisible way. I think that it's um, somewhat a responsibility of us as Americans to learn about other cultures because they help us as 
people. They add to our diversity and our richness and stuff. So I tend not to translate my work because I think the reader and the audience can do a little bit of that exploration for themselves and in that learn more about these cultures that they may not accept or understand so right. um that's one of the things that i um i've been asked to do i've been asked to translate my work and you know if i thought that it alienated my readers and i really don't think that i think that if people are invested in learning about who you are and what your message is and they're you know they resonate with your voice they can do the work to understand that and language is a really good way to understand another culture so we should point out i guess before Really, before we wrap up the the whole podcast, I'm definitely going to have you do a reading. But in terms of how you write your poems, a lot of times you'll you sort of flip back and forth between English and Spanish, mm-hmm. and so that's what you're getting at when you talked about translating. So it's not it's yeah. kind of like just going back and forth, which kind of make like that makes sense. That speaks to your sort of background. Yeah, and right? yeah, and it's a complete and total reflection of like how I see myself as when I write about that kind of stuff. It was very fluid, and we did go back and forth quite a bit. And there was no distinction between yeah. what was American and what wasn't American. And even at home, like um, we spoke English and Spanish. Like my mo- my parents are one hundred percent Mexican, but when I visit them now, because they've lived in this country for so long. Um, they speak Spanglish too. So it's it's interesting. It's just part of where we're from. It's right. evocative of the environment that we yeah. were raised in. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So tell me about, in terms of writing poetry, what was your first, like, how did you, what was your first connection with poetry? To or, poetry. Yeah. Okay, so. Or write, even writing, if you want to. Well, um, like every, uh, teenager and preteen I was pretty emo so I kept a journal I wrote a lot um writing about my like broken heart and my unrequited love and all that stuff growing up um but I initially hated poetry I thought that it was a very convoluted way of getting to the point and oftentimes when I would study it like what I would feel was like why can't you just say what you say? And thinking about that now, one, I was very ignorant. And two, it does still kind of um, influence the way that I write. I don't like any superfluous stuff in my poetry. I don't like to think in it. I like to feel and do and make, you know, all the other stuff. So um, at first, I really didn't understand poetry because I didn't know how to penetrate it. And then it wasn't until um, I went to school that I was like, oh, this is practical. This is applicable. This helps you understand the world. This helps you understand yourself in it. And this helps you understand um, big social movements and stuff. So poetry was a vehicle for me to care about the other shit that I didn't think I was smart enough to understand um, being in a private school and an art school and stuff. So that was one of the things. Another one was my fucking sister. Like she used to write these like shitty rhyming poems in her notebooks and stuff and she would you know um call this is interesting she would call the radio station in Laredo um so it's like I don't know sometime in the 90s or something like that she would call the radio station and she would read her shitty poetry on the radio and they would play it they'd play her fucking shitty poetry on the radio so that was really inspiring to see her do that especially now like after having seen the tumultuous life that she's had and how she's come out of that so my first kind of um my first exposure to that was my sister on the phone being sappy with the radio station and then also um 
having that kind of like difficulty with it in school. Like it intrigued me more than math did. Like math, I was just like, fuck this, this is stupid. I don't never need to worry about this ever. But um, poems were like a problem to be solved. They were like a puzzle to put together. They also encouraged me to like um, expand my vocabulary. Um, but now I don't believe in that stuff. I don't think that. I think that thesaurus is like the killer of poems. You shouldn't do that. You should try to get to the truth. When did you re- <clears throat> when did you write your first, I guess, real, let's in quotes, real poem, do you think? What do you mean by real? Like it got published Just like, no, or like. Not, not, even, not even something that published, but, you know, something beyond, I guess, sort of like, sort of juvenile. Because hmm. I think, you know, a lot of people have explored poetry to some degree, right? But like, mm-hmm. when was the like, maybe the, okay, let's say this, the first like serious or at least remotely serious effort that you put into writing a poem. Okay, so like when did the editing process ruin my life? Um, <laughs> so my, it had to have been in college. Like I, I did write when I was in high school. I went to a fine arts high school and I, you know, I wrote for the literary magazine they had there and stuff. And I realized then at the time that I had all these opinions on what fucking poetry was, et cetera, et cetera. But it wasn't until I went to, uh, college that I was like, okay, this is something that people do. This is something that can move people. And that's when I really tar- started to see it as an art form and as just something that you can produce and as something that you can use to help people either understand um, a universal truth or something that you feel is specific to just you or something like that. That's when I really started to understand that Poetry was in and of itself a, not just a language, but an event. Like you experienced it like a thing. It was a moment that you captured. It was something that you were able to make timeless and keep living forever, even though once something's on a page, it's essentially dead. It's something that can come back to life. That's that's the first time that I really got an understanding of language that way. Um, and it also was the first time that I was like, well, these, there's these things inside me that are like either pestering me or they're very persistent or they're, uh, they're resonating to kind of teach me something that I can't put my finger on it. That was when I realized that poetry is something that you can use to take what is somewhat ephemeral or not concrete or abstract or something like that, something that is... I don't know, just like the princess and the peace stuff, like what's under the mattress. Poetry is a way that you can really kind of capture that and make it a thing. It makes it like a working thing. But I I wasn't aware of that kind of world until I went to college and I was away from everything that I was like familiar with. In terms of influences, do you, do you have any kind of things that and or writers that sort of stood out that influenced kind of the direction that you've taken? Well, yeah, I'm like a girl poet, so obviously Sylvia Plath is a big influence, um, mainly because she was okay um, speaking about the negative things about being a woman, which I think is like an untapped um, subject. She was also very severe and direct with her language, which I enjoy. Um, and then there was, uh, you know, John Berryman who focused on the form. He really liked to write sonnets, but his sonnets were like extremely fucked up because he would fuck his students and drink and shit himself and all this other shit. So it was like, um, interesting. They both committed suicide. So it was like interesting to read their work, um, that felt so vast and yet you knew it was very finite and stuff. And 
Some, uh, what I really liked about the poets that I um, read was how they made me understand the world. Like when I read Douglas Anderson, I like understood what Vietnam was about. I understand now why it affects our American um, kind of uh, consciousness, you know, but I couldn't understand that from like the news and fucking Ken Burns documentaries and all that shit. I had to learn that from Douglas Anderson who used something like, uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey to really talk about what Vietnam was like. So um, once I saw that um, poetry could give me like a context to understanding the world, I fell in love with it because it in turn helped me create a conduit to understanding myself and my family and my history and people in general and stuff like that. So that's kind of when I felt that it really, um, there was like a paradigm shift in me. I was originally a theater major. I was going to be an actress. So you mentioned form. What? How does? How is your work influenced by form? Because I feel like now, at least you know, obviously, I don't have a great deal of literacy in terms of what's happening now and sort of in in poetry. How does that impact you? Because I feel like, right? It's like there's oftentimes there's this dichotomy, and it's not always one way or, or the other way. But sometimes having the limit of something like the sonnet form, for example, mm-hmm. can it's that's can open up the creativity. That's where the create how gen- creativity is generated because there is a limit. So that has mm-hmm. to make you think, okay, how do I tell communicate what I want to communicate? Within those restraints. Within those restraints, right. But also like so there's that aspect, right? But there's also the aspect of well, if there's no like if we're totally disregarding all conventions all rules etc yes there is um there's a freedom to that but there's it's um, there's and sometimes it can be easier right because Mm -hmm. of there's no restriction Mm -hmm. but at the same time it can even be more challenging or overwhelming it can depend on the context right because if there's if you can do everything then you can't do anything it can mobilize you right so how, how do you feel like you deal with that or is that something that you're Mm. even conscious of as far as form goes like are you intending to evoke something well so so there's two griseldas right when it comes to writing there's i mean i write professionally for a living and then i also do my creative stuff as well so um for me because uh my professional life is kind of constrained and somewhat corporate etc etc i use more of the idea of the form in that realm so like there is a formula to um marketing and advertising you know there's a formula to copywriting there's a formula to what is good graphic design there's a formula to what makes a great video what a storytelling arc is there's a formula to all of that stuff so i really really focus on the form when it comes to my work that gets me paid you know so that's something that i really need a lot of structure in um i need to guide the team into figuring out what the creative vision is for xyz project whatever when it comes to writing uh my poetry and stuff like that i tend not to focus on the form um the i'll do form as an exercise like if i'm ever stumped or if i need um some sort of motivation or something like that like some of the poems that i have published online are assignment poems um poems that i gave myself um that had a very specific structure that i had to follow and a very specific model that i needed to feel but that's only to like that's like the plug 
for me, what works very well for me is free verse. You know, this kind of like roaming verse where you can explore and there are no restraints and stuff like that. The reason why that works for me is because it doesn't overwhelm me um, because I'm constantly ruminating about the things that I need to write. So I'm like a very slow poet when it comes to creating stuff. I Something happens and I feel it and I have to think about it for a long time and I have to like place it within myself and then also figure out how that's going to change me as a person. And I, I ruminate on, it's kind of like, um, like, uh, you're, you're, you got this kernel of this little grain of sand that you're trying to make into a pearl. You make it and you make it, and you make it. And then once it's out of you start to shape it. So I think I focus more on process than form when it comes to my creative work. But when it comes to my actual paycheck, it's all form there. It's all structure. So talk to me about, you said, was it, it was free verse? Mm -hmm. Okay. So there's also a blank verse. What, what can you like maybe define mm. the characteristics are there? Huh. So Cause one was, there's also meter or something. That's right. Very yeah. Important. Uh huh. Um, I think that blank verse can still, and I could probably be completely wrong, but I think that blank verse still leads some room to use meter if needed. Um, if you wanted to, if the writer or the poet would like to produce that in there, I think that there's still some freedom in that. Um, free verse is more like you really don't have to follow any of those conventions whatsoever. You don't even have to worry about white space in the same way. You can, you can have your stanzas run together. You don't have to break it up. You don't have to do any of that. Um, so just really, I think it's, it's a subtle difference, but, um, to me as a writer, it really doesn't, I mean... I, I, the less restrictions I can have, the better. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And so it looks like a, so blank verse is, there's no rhyme scheme, but it follows iambic pentameter. So I think yeah. that's probably yeah. the distinction yeah. is there's no per set meter within free verse. Yeah. I'm, I'm definitely not that restrictive of a poet. I'm not smart enough to be honestly, Cooper. Like I, uh, to really, one of the things that I'm still exploring in my work is uh, the syllabic music and also um, the beats that I'm using within that. So I focus mostly on like stanzas, line breaks, white space. Um, I like to have a lot of like surprise at the end of the line, making something that, you know, like ending the line in a break that forces you as a reader to want to enthusiastically move to the next one and see how it fits. Um, I focus more on that. I'm sure that there's meter in there. Like I've had um, some pretty amazing writer friends look at my work and kind of figure it out and stuff like that. But that vision is still kind of lost to me. I think I'm too close to it. So do you keep up? I mean, how do you, and I'm totally ignorant of this, like how do you, do you stay up on the trends mm -hmm. within how like do you stay contemporary? Up on poetry? Yeah. Contemporary poetry, like, what does that world even even look like? Because mm. I feel like we've been in this mode of like blank verse, free verse for, you know, plus like at, at this point, like what is the, like how do you even do poetry now in, oh, in the, in the context? Well, um, as you may or may not have noticed, poets are having kind of a moment right now in both media and like uh, social channels and stuff like that because they are the big mouths that are, um, speaking on a bunch of our current social issues. So I think that poets are um, in the spotlight right now because they can respond to the world uh, beautifully and in a way that um, other people can resonate with and maybe 
truly feel. So I think that poets now have like a great responsibility um, to really speak to kind of like truth to power, you know, like the things that are going on right now. Poets have a great way of capturing that experience in uh, visceral ways for people that may not be connected um, either politically or however else. Like poets are a good bridge for that. Um, how I keep up on that stuff, well, I'm very lucky to be um, part of a community of poets. Um, so I'm really interested in what poets my age are doing. Like, what are we writing about and what are we talking about and what are we um, focusing on and trying to tackle as subjects and also how is that influencing the um, poetic sphere at all? Like, I am more interested in what's going on with that than I am in the in the poetic canon. Like, I don't give a shit who's being you know, published in the New York Times. Right. I really don't give a fuck who's doing any of that. I'm more interested in the people that are speaking from marginalized places. Like, how are they putting that up? And how are they um, bringing the world awareness of what it's like to be in that situation? So I'm a little bit more interested than that. Um, how do you keep up on it? It's hard. You know, poets are, are, are hard to find. Um, the published ones have gone through so much just to get published. There's still so many that are writing in anonymity you know, that um, need their voices lifted up and stuff. So I try to kind of just be as open as I can. I could definitely be better read. Um, but, you know, it's just finding what's there. And then finding, like, journals that you um, resonate with. So I would, like, rattle. Um, I'll read poetry, um, some other stuff, a lot of zines that my friends are doing, stuff like that. How important would you say that something like, let's maybe use this, like, so there's you know, there's a narrative, you can have like a narrative arc within your poem, right? Or like an image arc, mm -hmm. right? So there's, mm -hmm. you're trying to evoke a, fi a feeling, you're trying to evoke an image. But also, is that something that you focus on? Or also, because also I think there's something within just the words themselves mm -hmm. as well that is less structured. Like the words themselves and the way that they sound and, and move and the rhythm of them is more important than trying to achieve like some kind of coherent imagery mm. or narrative style. Yeah. Do you, where do you fall on that? Or is there mm. maybe you just kind of, is there like a spectrum that you kind of shift back yeah, and forth yeah. through? So I think that um, there, so poems are vehicles, right? Like they bring something out, they bring something to life. And I think that what you're, what you're kind of talking about is the difference between a lyrical poem and a narrative poem. So like a lyrical poem is uh, focused on a central image and it somehow completely um, orbits around that image. Like let's say, um, let's take T.S. Eliot for some reason. Um, he uh, wrote about the objective correlative, which is a really interesting technique for poets, which means don't write about the subject directly, write about the subject indirectly. And so his poems to me are rather lyrical because like, let's say someone dies, you want to write about them. You don't write about them in the coffin. You don't write about them dying. You write about maybe some cufflinks that they used to wear. Or you write about like their favorite shirt that you remember. Or you write about something like that. And that is a way to circle um, your subject and then in some in in using that method you be, you write a very lyrical poem that's more kind of moody and evocative and stuff like that or you could write something that's a straight narrative poem which has a beginning and a middle and an end and right. a direct like storyline that you're trying to follow so um, it just really depends on what you're trying to do like for instance um, 
I wrote a poem called Henry's Cabin, which I think is pretty narrative. Like it's about it's it's about um, Henry who's got a cabin and his cabin starts getting broken into and he realizes that it's broken into by Mexican um, immigrants or people who are crossing the border illegally because they're only taking like food and oil and stuff that they have none of his valuables are ever touched whatever so that poem has a very distinct like beginning middle and end Henry goes to his cabin finds it's broken into uh, realizes who it is and then tries to find the people and help them so that's kind of like a story arc within that poem and then I have a poem about my father called sardines which is like focusing on the image of the sardine and having that central image help me understand who my father was growing up. So it just really depends on what your poem is trying to do. So do you, okay, whenever you're sitting down to write something, or do you even sit down to write anything for my own process? I think that I just will randomly, either I'll be in, either thoughts come to me randomly, inspiration just jumps out of nowhere, or I'm talking with someone or reading and that gets my mind going on mm -hmm. a strain and then that mm -hmm. like I'll latch on to maybe like just whatever you say might trigger some other thought could mm -hmm. like totally be unrelated and then I'm consumed by that thought do you like do you have an intentional process whenever you're sitting down and trying to write a poem or you just sort of have something that sort of comes to you that mm. grips you and you feel like you have to right on that topic like well yes it's both so in order to capture the subject and the moment you have to be pretty spontaneous and you have to be open and you have to be you know um active in what it is that you're trying to capture so there is that part like in order to get the kernel of the poem you have to be open to that kind of stuff you have to be spontaneous you have to be um able to be quick on your thoughts and follow the chains of um of what you're trying to create once that stage is done the work happens like you sit down and you edit it and you try to figure out what it is that you were trying to say and yeah that feels really good and that sounds really cool but does it fucking mean anything and does it make the poem work does it further the work that the poem is trying to do so my process is both you have to I have to be open enough to feel the things that are going to inspire me to be able to take them in emotionally and then once I'm done kind of capturing the feeling adding the sense to it, like editing it, making sure that it's a, it's a piece of work that someone else off the street would read it and say, oh yeah, I get that, I feel that, I understand that, I know what they're feeling, or I felt that way too. So it's a little bit of both. You have to be open to the idea and to remain fertile as something that can accept these ideas. And then once the poem begins to shape itself, you really, really get down and dirty and figure out what it is that you're trying to mean. What is the poem trying to do? And that's where the real work comes in. Like you have to be secure in your editing and also be willing to give up the things that you love if they're not doing the poem service, if they're not furthering the action that the poem is trying to fulfill. Can you talk about what what makes a poem work for you? Mm, for me? Yeah. Um, because I think this is a very interesting part of the process. It's obviously like you're keeping your poems pretty like you're being very economical yes i am I and am. you're constraining and you're very, being very like you're chiseling things down right yeah. so how do you arrive how does that process unfold so um i think that what makes a poet a great poet or a writer a great writer is their um proficiency in the craft 
Like it's one thing to be an imaginative writer. It's one thing to be, you know, someone who's incredibly creative and verbose and who can produce this amazing imagery and stuff like that. But if the craft is not executed um, perfectly, the poem is somewhat superficial. So I think that that is a big um, driving factor for me. It's like, okay, yeah, I'm really good at images and I'm really good at connotation and I'm really good at word choice, but like, is it working? And so what makes a poem work for me um, is something that feels timeless, something that is not um, superfluous, something that's not um, self-serving. It's something that you give. Um, and you're also trying to be incredibly authentic about, like a po poetry doesn't let me bullshit myself and it doesn't let me bullshit others because the bullshit is fluff. The bullshit is superfluous. It's like a, opinions. It's like th stuff that really doesn't matter. So once the poem gets down to its, its um, like innate truth, like what the poem is trying to do, I think that's a very successful poem. If you can get down to that, if you can get down to the truth of your poem, your poem's going to tell you what it needs. Your poem is going to tell you how to do it. it it's, it's getting out of your own way and figuring out, okay, this story came from me, but it is no longer about me. It's about the subject. It's about the object. It's about the motion, the motive. I have nothing to do with this anymore. I'm just the vessel that got it there. So to me, when a poem works, it works when I'm no longer in it. It works when it no longer feels like it's a darling of mine. It's, it's something that exists outside of me. You mentioned craft. What, what is craft? So... Craft is, I would describe it as the work. Like creativity is one thing. Creativity brings the work. Creativity, like let's say creativity is like the, it's, it's what you're doing to nurture the, the seed of your idea. That's the creativity. You want it to flourish and you want to give it as much of an opportunity as you can to make it successful. You want to give it all that it needs so that it can flourish in its own environment, right? So it's like, let's say you're growing a plant, you grow this bush and it's growing and it's huge and, you know, amazing, this rose bush, whatever. Craft comes in when you really start to pare it down. Like, uh, yeah, this is great, but does it further the narrative? No, it doesn't. So remove it. Yeah, this is an amazing line, a great image, but does it do anything to the story? No. Then why is it there? The craft really comes in when you're paring it down, when you're trying to whittle down to the truth. Yeah. So I think that that in some ways is a lot more important than creativity. Like it's one thing to get the material on the page, but then you have to make it something. And that's where craft comes in. Craft is what helps you um, untangle your message. And it, it's what helps you uh, create like a, it's like you create something that you can hand to someone else. And then that person can have the experience with it unique and to themselves without having the clutter of your creativity in there, your, you know, your ego, whatever that is. So for something like a screenplay, right, it makes sense, you know, draft after draft after draft. But in terms of poetry, like, I wonder, how do you draw the balance? Because, you know, maybe a first, how do you, how do you deny or decide that maybe a first draft or an early draft, let's say, doesn't speak the truth mm. and requires paring down? Mm. You know what I mean? Because I yes. think that how those distinctions like I think an early draft of a poem can speak to truth and like 
that's you know what I mean? That's again, that's like that's there's so much freedom that it's like almost there's too like too much freedom is bad because mm-hmm. if ever like I said earlier, if you can do everything, then you can't do anything. Right. But if you you know what I mean? Uh-huh. Just feeling like you arbitrarily have to pare down mm-hmm. something like a poem that is very much based in like this kind of mm-hmm. strange <laughs> You know what I mean? Because there's so much that you can do. There's so much freedom and there's so much about imagery and different like aspects to it. I don't know. It's, it seems like overwhelming to figure out like what, mm-hmm. <laughs> when, when, it, when is a poem f- sort of, done? when do you feel good about like with what? it? It probably doesn't ever feel like things are done, right? But well, when can you start mm-hmm. feeling good about okay, a poem? Okay, so you can start feeling good about a poem when you feel like it's somewhat done. And um, the way that I achieve that level of completeness with my work is I edit stuff live like I know that that's pretty scary and stuff for some writers but I'll take my drafts and I'll read them to to audiences like if I'm if I'm um, you know booked for a performance or something like that I'll always bring some work that I'm that's in progress and I'll read it out loud and I'll see how it is in front of people and I'll gauge the reaction and stuff like that Um, so I try to make my work that is very solitary not as solitary I try to make it as interactive as possible and honestly you're at one point you're writing for yourself but then you're done writing for yourself you're trying to push this out into the world you're trying to push this out to others whether it's because you want some affirmation or because you want to console somebody or because you feel like you have like a uh, strong and pertinent opinion or some sort of insight on something you want to push it out into the world so it stops becoming yours it stops belonging to you and so I think that you for me, I know that a poem is done, one, when it feels succinct, like there's nothing else that I can take out of it. This is as tight as I have it wound. And two, um, if it's received a certain way, you know, like you have to, that's a large part of you cultivating yourself as an artist is, are you resonating with your audience, whoever that is? And Um, at what point do you stop writing merely for yourself as kind of like, you know, masturbatory, self-pleasure, stuff you like hearing, whatever. And um, at what point do you really dedicate yourself to um, try to move people, try to bring people into your experience? So I think that that is a big factor. I know that a poem is done when I no longer want to touch it. When I feel like if I touched it again, I would totally ruin it. That's when a poem is done for me. In terms of whenever you're writing, do you have a conception of performance versus the individual reading it in terms of like, do you feel there's a, do you have a preference as far as you think people need to read this aloud Mm. or do they need to experience it very intimately within their own headspace? Um, I think that when it comes to that, I'm, I'm pretty selfish. There is, there is not, you're not going to have the same experience of reading a poem as you would having it read to you by the person who created it. I think that there's so much like nuance and um, unspokenness that comes with hearing the work directly from someone who produced it that you could never have um, on your own. One thing about poetry that's different from, you know, any other sort of fiction is that in order to truly appreciate it or to appreciate it deeply, you do have to read it out loud. You do have to kind of slow yourself down, put yourself in the space for that. But, um, 
with someone like let's say me my perspective as a you know a bilingual writer someone who's a first generation american first generation texan someone with an experience growing up that maybe Mm -hmm. some people have shared but not many it's always so much better to hear it from the source because you hear that kind of intonation and you hear the passion behind certain lines and uh just how the poet tends to color their work is completely enriching. So if you have the opportunity to support and hear the poets and writers that you enjoy, if you can go see them live, you'll get so much more out of that experience because it goes beyond just writing in the page. Like they're they're creating an experience. They're creating a moment. We're building time and space together on a specific topic that can help you really learn and understand something that is truly outside of yourself. So it's one thing to enjoy poetry on your own. It's completely different to hear it from from the source. How long would you say, or does it, maybe there's a, is there a certain amount of time that you spend crafting a piece or is it just sort of, you just kind of have this instinctual feeling? Hmm. Well, that depends. It feels like it's probably instinctual to some degree, It's a little bit of both. So, like, the instinct is definitely what gets the poems down. Like, my instincts tell me the words. My instincts tell me the feeling. My feelings tell me, you know, this is what you're trying to convey. The editing process is like, okay, this is how you actually do it. This is how you, um, you clean this up so that someone else on the receiving end can accept it fully and understand what you're going through. Um... For me, though, um, like that first book of poems, so I wrote Blood and Piloncillo. Um, it got published uh, in 2018. It's a book of, what, 11 poems. Those poems took me 10 years to write. So it's like carrying them around and, and reading them out loud and performing them over and over again over a series of years before I thought that they were complete. Um, but that in and of itself took me a very long time. So knowing that some of these poems I carried out of college and made into something um, is pretty interesting because there is no real like timeline. There's no telling. Like I worked on them so much that they were the ones to tell me when they were done. And this particular collection of poems happened to take me 10 years. So it's hard to tell. And you're work- what are you working on now? So I am working on a second book of poems. Um, I was approached by Slow Press um, from the Rio Grande Valley to write a second book, so I'm doing that. Um, it's a pretty hefty project, though. It's uh, I'm going to need to write something around 30 pages, which is something that I haven't ever done. That's like a really large amount of work, um, but I'm steadily working on it. I think I got the first like five poems down, so I'm committing myself to um, writing that second book of poems um, this next year. It's a little bit weird, you know, like um, the first book won an award so it's kind of like the pressure of creating something that can supersede that or something like that and everybody knows the sophomore album is the hardest (laughs) one you know what I mean it's the hard one so figuring out um what my subject is is has been the most challenging thing like my the subject of my first book obviously was like identity biculturalism um immigration uh being from the border Uh, living as a Mexican in America, all that stuff. So there was a definite subject, homesickness, all this shit. There was a definite subject and kind of a collection of images that made that book of poetry work. The second one is a little bit difficult for me because now I'm like my own person. I'm in a different stage of my life. My relationships are completely different. My um, 
just my general like state of being is so far from who I was when I wrote that first book that it's interesting to see what's coming up. So I'm writing where at first I shied away from like love and relationships and anything that I felt kind of banal and trite. Now um, those like topics and subjects are taking uh, prominence in my life and they're a large focus of what I'm doing, like building relationships and, um, you know, feeling love and loving others and understanding um, how to make it in this world as like a singular person and, you know, dealing with all the shit that's going on with our administration and how that's a whole new world of shit that I never thought I was going to have to worry about in this kind of way. So it's interesting to see what's happening in my writing. It's getting to be a lot more uh, polarized in the writing itself, like where I used to sprinkle kind of uh, bilingual words here and there in the poems. Now, Maybe one line is in English and the following line is in Spanish. So it's more like structured, a little more regimented. It's it's definitely taking a different kind of evolution. Than kind I'm of pointing out like a lot more contrast. Yes. Yeah. Which I think makes sense, you know, given like the world we're living in right now, everything is very polarized and black and white and stuff like that. So my uh, like poetic antenna is definitely picking that up. Yeah. Nice. So do you feel... How how do you feel in terms of, as far as politics go, do you, is it something that is close to your heart? Is it something that you sort of don't really hmm. pay a lot of attention to? Um, I mean, I don't think you cannot pay attention to it right now, unfortunately, <laughs> as much as you, I would like to. Um, but I think, too, something that, like, I unfairly realize is that, whether I want to or not, I'm a political person just by being, I, you know, who I am in my identity, you know, being an American who's also a Mexican, you know, um, I did not vote for Trump, all that other stuff, you know, so like it's, um, it's interesting to me now what my politics are like, because um, the administration has been like a fucking zoo. And like everything that's going on right now is, in some ways, surprising to me, but the Mexican in me who grew up with like these puppet governments and, you know, across and this like phony and violent uh, state, whatever. Also, this is kind of old hat shit, too. You know, like it's uh, it's incredible that Americans are kind of, a you know, completely surprised at the way that politicians are acting. I don't think Mexicans feel that way. You know, Mexicans are used to this kind of puppetry bullshit and you know a lot of violence whatever the only thing that really distincts like distinguishes americans from that is that americans tend to try to be a little bit more discreet about it so in many ways it's bizarre and in many ways growing up on the border kind of prepared me for like the hypocrisy that we're dealing with now so um i tend as much as i tend not to address it like directly in my writing it definitely comes out, you know, like there's just no way that I can help it. What about in terms of, so obviously, you you know, I'm an anarchist mm -hmm. and I'm a leftist and I'm on that track. Like, how do you feel about that sort of more, I guess, ideological spectrum for, so, you know, obviously like the, the democratic kind of establishment liberalism mm -hmm. etc like do you feel pulled in any in any sort of direction as far as that goes mm. 
I don't know. I think that I'm still too ignorant about that stuff. I could definitely be better uh, about understanding my role in all of this. I just, you know, like every, like many Americans, I feel we just feel kind of incapacitated. Like, what the fuck can we do to actually make a difference in anything that's going on? Like, how can we actually come together to figure out or overthrow whoever it is we need to overthrow? It's very difficult for me to understand that. And I think that my, um, the fact that I am also like apart from being an American, I don't know if it's like made me made made me more of a realist or made me fucking cynical, you know, because Mexicans know no matter what you do, the government's never going to change. And they sort of kind of accept that. So is it smart for an American to do that? Or is it complacent for an American to do that? Do Americans really have the power to change their situation? I don't really know. Um, I don't know what I could do uh, personally outside of like humanitarian acts. Like, you know, I don't, uh, one of the biggest things that I um, am against is our uh, mass incarceration. <laughs> I really think that that's fucking up the world for brown and black people. It's fucking up the world for everybody. Um, and so the way that I address that is by, you know, uh, becoming a mentor to a child of a prisoner, maybe changing their life in that way, maybe showing them that, you know, um, art is a way of life, writing is a way of life, their experiences matter. But outside of something like that, I really don't know what stance to take. That makes sense. Yeah, I think so. Makes me feel like a piece of shit, like I could do more. I mean, we could always do more, I think. It's easy to feel guilty, but as far as, like for me, the whole narrative of the United States is this whatever thing, like... I don't give a fuck about the United States. I don't give a fuck about being an you don't American. Think, you don't think you're exceptional? <laughs> I mean, yes, I'm exceptional. That's, that's but not, obvious. But not because you're an American. But not because I'm an American. Okay, and not because I'm a man or not because I'm white. Not because I'm male. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. fuck all of those. Those categories are for other people. Those categories existed. Those come from the past, right? I had no control over... Any of that shit or any of that. But I will resist category. I will resist oppression, I guess, for Mm -hmm. lack of a better word. Like, I don't know. I just have that. Like, I want to fucking, I'm tired of this shit. You know what I mean? Like, do do you have that? I mean, I have like that feeling in my stomach. Like, I get viscerally angry Mm -hmm. at situations it's like i want liberation i'm so i'm tired i'm fucking fed up with the way that things are and i just want to explode like (laughs) you know yeah yeah do you ever feel like that of course yeah i do especially um for my people you know and then there's also like an obstacle to helping uh people of my same culture you know just because i'm a woman you know and being outspoken and stuff is kind of not really supported or something like that so it makes it interesting because I really really want to do something and at the same time know that I'm going to be like marginalized if I do um I also know that I'm going to be you know um in some way criticized for taking the stances that I do et cetera, et cetera. so there's a lot of things that come into play with you just wanting to be supportive like you know there's so many obstacles that you have to go over especially culturally for me like I think of my mother my mother being like what are people gonna 
think if you're acting this way, you're not acting like a lady. And it's like, you can't act like a fucking lady yeah, anymore. That's bullshit. The yeah. idea of a lady and how they should act is correct. Fuck that. Yeah. <laughs> like, but no. I mean, tell like a fucking yeah. Catholic Mexican right. that and try to get very far in that conversation. Yeah. So that's one of the biggest things too, like in, in becoming more liberated myself, I've had to overcome a lot of these expectations of my own culture that when I thought, you know, we would support one another, that's not necessarily the case. I've had a lot of obstacles put in my way by people of my same culture, which is like really dissonant and weird, you know? So it's interesting. What, what would it take to radicalize you and get you out in the streets? (laughs) Um, fucking shit up not very much not very actually much. no i get that impression that's why i'm <laughs> trying i just want to know like not very much i mean like i am a passionate and caring person and if i see any sort of injustice being done on someone um that i could potentially help in any way i definitely will step in i always do um one of my favorite things to do is to pull over and translate for cops who have pulled people over that I know don't speak any English. (laughs) I like to do that stuff just because, um, I mean, helping my people, you know, I really hate it when people take advantage of, um, immigrants, especially since they're here in this country to try to make a better life. They're literally uprooting their lives to go somewhere where they don't know the customs, the language, the culture and stuff like that. And dealing in a situation such as, you know, with that involves the police is really scary to me. So if I can intervene in any way, shape or form, I always do. And sometimes I'm on the verge of getting into trouble for doing that sort of shit, but it's something that I'm willing to do. Um, so like I said, not much. I'm already pretty mouthy to the cops. I don't know what else <laughs> I could do. Yeah. Yeah. As far as like though, like identifying with sort of, I mean, I, even though whatever, this is kind of nebulous, but like I identify as a leftist. I identify primarily with anarchist, anarchism as in sort of ideology. It's mm-hmm. like, that's a, it's a value almost that I have. It's a, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. what would it take for you to feel like, I don't know, how how does all that, like, where do you see yourself in that mold? In of that? like Yeah. Hmm. Well, I think that... And I mean, again, category is, is whatever, right? Yeah. But still, well, like, it does shape, like, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I like, think, it's that push and pull. Right. I think that I'm going to, I'm going to, um, so you were talking to me about this one time, and I, I felt like a real big sissy because I was talking about, you know, how one of the more powerful influences that we have as human beings is the capacity to love, create love, understanding and stuff. And for some reason, you thought that that was a very radical way of approaching life. It's like um, approaching it through the transformative, the transformative act of love. Like what can you do through love? What can you do with caring? What can you do to change the world um, in that way? And I think that that's really the camp that I'm at. Like, I believe that if you have the capacity to love in any way, shape, or form, you should share that with those that maybe don't have access to that type of feeling or that type of interaction. I think that love is a transformative act. It's also destructive. It's also disruptive. It's a way of approaching things um, kind of on the flip side of like, anger destruction and chaos I think that's an answer to that so I try to be as empathetic and caring as I can in this like dismal and dark world because I think that that's a rare 
thing that really motivates and can change the way people see the world. So without it having to consume me in a negative way, I try to create or at least kind of build the capacity to love and and always, um, especially in these kind of tumultuous and dark times. I don't mind being that vulnerable. So for me, you know, a lot of my ideology, I guess, for lack of a better phrase, is is influenced a lot by kind of egoism. And so what that is saying is like, not like I'm the most important person or whatever, like the focus on the self, but it's also like if if other people are not able to be fully actualized human beings, then like there can't be it is it is selfish in a way. It's like I I want to interact with other fully actualized human beings. Mm-hmm. And if people can't be fully actualized because of an oppressive set of social relations like capitalism, then that's a problem that needs to be addressed. Mm-hmm. You know what and I'm you saying? would address like it by that, dismantling capitalism or by Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think there has to be a revolutionary rupture uh-huh. to break like that oppressive set of relations and create like it's not going to allow us to escape from this bullshit Mm -hmm. set of circumstances like all of that controls us and i mean you can see it everywhere it was like to break out of ideology to break out of that and become a fully actualized person that is not just you know i mean because like the knee-jerk reaction is this oh like you know i i was born in the be- of course, I was born in the best country that has the best system in the world. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. you're not a fully actualized person if you have that perspective, in right. my opinion. Yeah. Um, so how how would you encourage people to become fully actualized if they maybe don't have the same sort of like privilege and advantages that you have as an individual? I don't know if that's a that's a great that's a great that is the question of all questions yeah or how can you use your station to help sex self actualize others i don't know maybe example education Mm -hmm. jokes i don't know yeah i would throw in a translation to get it in other languages so people understand what you're kind of trying to get out there diversify that shit true but yeah, I mean, I feel that's the number one. We have to get rid of this working to make other people rich basic <laughs> premise of capitalism. Yeah, I mean, yes, I and get like that. And like wasting energy and resources and oh, destroying the absolutely. environment, et cetera, et cetera, on yes. a bunch of like superfluous bullshit. And like we should take care of one another because we're all like, that's the only way we survive Mm -hmm. is is through art and love i agree is through cooperation with one another you know yeah making art rather than antagonism which is what i feel like the mode of capitalism does it's just like puts you it isolates you and disconnects you from everyone else because everyone else Mm -hmm. is a competitor right there's someone to be everyone else is an obstacle or they're a they're like a commodity for you to consume. Like, mm-hmm. how can this person, mm-hmm. what value can I extract right. from this person yes. to propel my own yep. ranking in this fucking bullshit hierarchy? Right. You just described a bunch of my friends. Yeah, yeah I get it. 
Totally. I mean, it's a it's a shitty thing. I think that um, I mean, I'm very aware of the way that this world exploits me for my creativity, my labor, my beauty, my feminism, my et cetera, et cetera. I can see how I'm being exploited on a daily basis, how that's how capitalism is a vampire to all of that stuff. You know how it's like a, a losing investment. You're putting in all this time to um really not know how you're going to end up at the end and really truly at the end everyone dies so like what's the point of all this shit etc cetera, etc cetera. but um i think that within that some of the most revolutionary things that we can do is opt out of that and love one another i mean i know that sounds like i'm a big giant fucking hippie i'm not um but i do believe that the more we focus on um, what makes us truly human the farther and farther away from capitalistic impulse we get Do you want to, um, I feel like we're coming to a sort of a close in terms of the conversation. Do you want to go ahead and read? I, I want you to read from the Blood and Piloncio. And I think the one that I want you to read for us is going to be Elgin. Okay, Cooper, I think and I, tell the world why you like it. So I love this poem because of the imagery. It's It really speaks to me. It's very evocative. Like I can see the images in my mind whenever I read the words and I hear you read the words, but also because I have a family connection to Elgin, um, you know, like cousins mm -hmm. have lived there and mm -hmm. gone to school there. And it's a play, you know, my parents had a restaurant on the outskirts of Elgin. So it's a place that, you know, I'm familiar with that I've grown up around and then I have a personal like connection to. Okay. So just the title alone, but I think, like I said, the imagery just really sticks out for me. So Thank you. Well, um, Elgin is the only love poem that I've ever written. And it's um, so it's in the first book called Blood and Piloncio. It is a poem. It's an assignment poem that I wrote while I was at a writer's retreat. And um, they were talking about how love the word love and the concept of love is um overused in poetry so i wanted to really lean into that and begin to use the concept of love and the word love like the actual word um as some sort of like repetitive percussion throughout the poem so this is what came out of there elgin we sat outside smelling cotton, flattered by leaf-tongue air songs by clouds that spoke no truths, dragged nails across our scalps tilling a rough and wordless love. In this corner, love drove its beak through figs drawing sangre, red lodo bled, and fruit love was taken by the soil. We sought the roots of love, tangled in black earth, clutching clumps of love like fistfuls of hair. La verdad is love was dark and private. To grasp it, we dug inward and were blinded. Poppies in the rain don't think about love, they think about the weather, or las abejas lifting off of them, loaded with pollen, they think about the ache of being nuzzled from within. The spring of another time clustered around gallinas pecking love off the ground in Elgin. Red wasps flew over grass wells hunting water. To them, love was a puddle in a half-buried doll's face. Their love descends upon eyes and drinks tears. 
I've forgotten if there were chicharras that day or just traffic vibrating on the veins of a highway or if the creek spilled onto our love, flipping honey trucks, or if the sweet glue bound and tracked our wings. How did we get so lost dreaming of insects? The buzz at the end of our sleep was your tongue, loving, thirsty, a red wasp emerging from the ground. <laughs> thank you. Damn, that's so good. Thank that you. Is a, that's a fire track. Yes, thank you. The fucking, the imagery is just amazing. Uh, love you for saying that. It's thank really you. good. It's really good. I, I love that one. Um, I think that may be the first one that you ever read for me that's as well. That's the only one yeah. I've ever read for you. So I think that's one of my favorite. I don't know, it just it stands out. It stood out above the rest. But um, I want to give you the opportunity before you close out the show to if you have any social media stuff if you have any upcoming events etc mm -hmm. like anything that you want to plug and you want to share maybe where we can find your book cool. etc yeah so um you can find me online i'm on facebook um griselda jane castillo um my book had a very limited run but if anyone is interested in having a copy i'm sure i can make that happen feel free to follow me on facebook or email me my email is griselda j castillo at gmail.com um, working on the second book I don't have any performances lined up right now I may be performing at Split This Rock in Washington DC next year um, I'll be performing with the band and writing um, some new poems to go with that so lots of exciting things ahead but as of now reach out to me friend me let's talk about cool shit all that stuff thank you for having me on yeah absolutely it's an absolute pleasure it was all mine so um, before we before I sign off, I uh, just want to remind folks that definitely um, could use a little bit of support to make the podcast continue to be a thing. Um, definitely struggling in terms of finances and and whatnot, and keeping this thing going. So any um, you know, if you can, definitely feel free to uh, look me up on Patreon. Once again, that's at www.patreon.com forward slash podcast co cooper cherry. You can follow me on or the podcast Twitter account at podcast co cooper and Instagram as well at podcast underscore co underscore cooper underscore cherry. But this will be podcast care of Cooper Cherry signing off. The very rules of eating of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is this is a typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. What I meant is the following. With nothing left but recycled, whitewashed, lobotomized people, as in a block work orange.